This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. As always, we are presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70. They are celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. We've been celebrating it with them all summer long. I'm Tim McMaster along with Ken Rosenthal. We're answering your questions. We do it every Monday. Thanks for checking us out. Give us a five star rating if that's something you can do where you're listening. We appreciate it. It helps the show, helps grow it, and helps get the word out to everyone else. Ken, how are you doing? Doing well, Tim. All right. Well, Ken, it was a it was a feel good week in baseball. I'm going to say there's a lot of weeks that aren't, but this was a, a cool week. Field of Dreams game. We had a no hitter. We're going to talk about both. But let's start um, with the Field of Dreams game out in Dyersville, Iowa. You were out there for the Fox broadcast. Um, they said if you build it, they will come. And we learned this week that if you broadcast it, they will watch because this was the most watched baseball regular season game in 16 years, um, but you were there on the ground. So I'd love to hear your take on what it was like being a part of that broadcast. First of all, Tim, the entire night was so beautiful in so many ways, just the way the players came out of the corn, the sunset, all of these elements that were going on. And it was, yes, a thrill to be there. If you don't like the movie, I guess it's less of a thrill. I happen to like the movie. I get why people don't like it, but Forget all that. It was two really good teams playing in a cornfield, which is something kind of unimaginable, right? So that premise, that start starting point alone made it really intriguing. And I can tell you, in all my years at Fox, and I go back to 2006 with the network as far as television is concerned, and I cannot remember a time when our people, and this goes from the executives right down to us involved in the broadcast, cameraman, audio people, anybody you want to think of, people were so excited, our people were, and they were so ready to bring this broadcast to the world and show it off. And I mention everyone on the technical side because our technical people are incredible at what they do. And obviously you saw that if you were watching the broadcast, but what they are able to do, and it, there are so many people that go into making a broadcast. It's the director, it's the producer, it's, as I mentioned, the cameraman, the audio people, graphics, all kinds of things are going on. Replay. I can't even begin to list them all. I'm not sure I even understand it even after 15 years, everything that goes on. But there's a lot of pride. There's a ton of professionalism. And listen, I've never worked really at any other network besides MLB Network. So I don't know, or I don't have a basis for comparison, but I have always felt that it's an honor to work on our broadcast because of the quality and the care of the people involved. And that night, we've done World Series, we've done All-Star Games, they've won all kinds of Emmys, I get it. To me, I mentioned this to a couple of people who were involved, including Joe Buck, I thought it was our finest hour. And obviously the game played into that. <laughs> the game was so ridiculously good, but... Just the way it was presented with the drone cameras and just the beauty of the whole evening, right? Starting with Costner in the very beginning, walking onto the field and that whole scene. 
it was just a spectacular night all around, and the game just topped it off. The game was like something out of a movie, which made it all the more better. But our producer, Pete Machesca, our director, Matt Gangle, Matt especially, was a huge role, or played a huge role in how it was presented visually. So I just want to let people know that, Tim, because I don't know that people always get a sense of what goes on. And I know Richard Deitch for The Athletic, often writes about the behind-the-scenes people and gives them their proper credit. But that was a night when, in my opinion, it all came together for us, and that includes everyone. And it was just an absolute thrill to be a part of, and I was still feeling really happy the day after. I was just psyched the way we had done that. It was cool. I feel like as you get older, you get less chills from sports, right? When you're little, you get the chills all the time, Yes, those feel-good chills, and and they kind of get fewer and further between it takes more to bring it on watching the beginning of that game with Costner as as cheesy as it was having Costner on the field it was special it it was just neat and it was it was baseball doing something right which they generally do with history they usually get history right and they did it even though it's a movie history they got it right and they're coming out of the cornfield and the players almost had the same looks on their face that the players in the movie had coming out of heaven onto the field in Field of Dreams. It was that almost like similar astonishment that, oh, I can't believe I'm on this field. Did did you have that? Did it kind of take you back to a, a more pure feeling, I guess, of baseball in the game? Yes, Tim, and I think that was what it did for everyone. And I interviewed Aaron Boone right before the game, and he said that. He said, this does bring me back. It's making me emotional because... Listen, things I write about and talk about on a regular basis often involve money and (laughs) things that are not necessarily pure baseball, right? And yet, this was the sport in its purest form, the way we often envision it in our mind's eye when we think back to our childhoods and why we fell in love with the game. And that is what drove the whole thing, in my opinion. It was a reminder to all of us not to quote James Earl Jones, but (laughs) of what baseball can be and of what it means to people. And that was what was so cool about it. We've got a labor negotiation coming up actually in progress right now. We've got Trevor Bauer. We've got all kinds of things on a daily basis that take our minds off why we have such passion for this sport. And that night brought it all back home. And that was what was so great about it. And if you didn't get goosebumps from that night, maybe you did on Saturday night. We're recording this on Sunday afternoon, but Saturday night, Tyler Gilbert throws a no-hitter in his first Major League start. And this isn't some phenom 22-year-old throwing a no-hitter in his first Big League start. Uh, He's a 27-year-old who had worked as an electrician in the offseason, helping out his dad to to get by last year when there was no baseball. He's been through it all to get to this point. In his first major league start, throws a no-hitter against the San Diego Padres of all teams. One of the best lineups in baseball. Uh, Ken, that was the second real feel-good moment of the week. That story is absolutely incredible. And if you haven't read it already, I advise everyone to go read Zach Buchanan's recap of it. And really what Zach did in his story on The Athletic is to explain just who this guy is. Because I will guarantee you, the average fan did not know who Tyler Gilbert was before Saturday night. I had barely heard of him myself, and I cover this sport for a living. So that's how unusual it was. This guy was not just a Rule 5 pick 
that you see in December not protected on a 40-man roster. No, he was a minor league Rule 5 pick, which means he wasn't protected on a AAA roster, which makes it all the more incredible that he was able to do this. And yes, you mentioned it. He was considering or had thought about becoming an electrician, and it didn't happen. He stuck with baseball. He actually gained a new appreciation for baseball working with his dad in the thought of becoming an electrician. So it was just such a great story, and it, it just tickled me in so many ways. I think it tickled a lot of people. And, of course, I did have a Twitter moment on Saturday <laughs> when I said – I actually said this on the broadcast. We did Phillies, Reds, and Matt Moore – took a no-hitter. Well, he had a no-hitter through six. The Phillies had a no-hitter through seven. And I said on the broadcast, hey, there were six no-hitters thrown by starting pitchers through May 19th. There hasn't been one since. And it coincides with the league's signaling enforcement of the sticky stuff rules. Remember, that happened in early June. And then (laughs) I added in the tweet, I was only talking about nine-inning no-hitters. There was one in June 24th that was a combined no-hitter, but none by a starting pitcher since the sticky stuff ban had come into effect. And I said, in any case, the year of the no-hitter seems to be no more. That was, let's see, I tweeted it at about 7 o'clock Saturday night. So what, four or five hours later, (laughs) that tweet looked ridiculous. (laughs) And I was very happy it looked ridiculous, though, of course, everyone on Twitter had great fun in reminding me of how dumb I seemed to be. But I will say, and I didn't say this on Twitter because I wasn't trying to start a fight, but all those people making fun of me, how many of you had heard of Tyler Gilbert? That's all I have to say. So anyway, no, it's just a fun night and really cool. Just the whole thing. The Diamondbacks have had such a bad season. So many bad things have happened with that team. And that was their best night of the year, easily. And really, you're right, Tim. One of the best nights in the year or of the year for the game. You mentioned Zach Buchanan's story. If people aren't subscribers to The Athletic and want to read that story, you can join. You can save 33% off. Go to the athletic, uh, go to theathletic.com slash baseball show for 33% off. Check that story out. It is, a, it is a great one. All right, let's move on to the mailbag, Ken. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week or get your voice on the show, call the Monday Mailbag Hotline. The number is 646-543-7072. If you can't get to the voicemail or we've had messages from people in other countries that don't want to pay for the voicemail, I get that. You can email us as well at tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Lots of good questions this week as well. And after a potpourri last week, a little more focus uh, this week. But the first question, Ken, is related uh, to the broadcast, actually, of the game on Thursday in Iowa. So here's Frank. Hey, Ken. Frank here. Wanted to just ask you this. What was it like covering the Field of Dreams game? Buster Olney was very jealous that you got to cover it and not him. And on his podcast, he even called you out for whether or not you've even ridden or driven a tractor, a John Deere tractor before. Do you have anything to say about Buster's words there? All right. And just so you know, we have Buster's words. Here he goes. They're going to be playing a major league game on a farm in Iowa, and I'm not be a part of it. Do you think that Ken Rosenthal knows anything at all about driving a John Deere tractor? Like what a sideline report (laughs) I could have done rolling up on a John Deere tractor. Do you think Tom Verducci 
knows anything about shoveling the manure of 40 cows twice a day. Of course, Buster is from, famously, from Vermont, where he grew up on a farm, for full context for people that don't understand it. But Ken, do you have a rebuttal? Well, first of all, it sounds like Buster was being a little bit facetious. I'm sure he did want to cover that game because, hey, who didn't want to cover that game? And yes, Buster did grow up on a farm in Vermont. We worked together at the Baltimore Sun. He talks about it frequently. It was a defining thing in his life. There is no question what he said is accurate. I have never ridden a tractor. I did not grow up on a farm. I do not have that experience. I can't argue with that. However, I would point out that I guess this would disqualify Buster from covering the Yankees ever again because he never rode the subways, right? I mean, that's the logic we're applying here. And Buster actually did cover the Yankees for the New York Times, wrote a great book about the Yankees. So I think he's done okay. And I think actually all of us have done okay because... I don't know what 1% of baseball writers actually played the game at a high level. Tom Verducci played at Penn state, Bob Clappish at Columbia. I don't know of any others who advanced that far, much less any further. So I'm good with it. And I would say to Buster, if he wants to cover the next field, of dreams game, well, he's not going to be able to probably, cause that would be on Fox too, but his network should bid for it. It's simple as that. His <laughs> network gets plenty of good games. They had the Fort Bragg game. I don't think Buster was in the Army, but he covered that one. And actually, it's just a lot of fun. And all of this is in good fun. And frankly, I set out in covering that game to kind of learn about the corn and the way it was grown. And the one report I did during the game was about the two local farmers, the brothers, who rent the Field of Dreams site and they grow the crop, they grow the corn for that area and they told me about the process and they told me that on Tuesday night two nights before the game there was this terrible storm that basically snapped off some of the corn they went out and purchased 1100 metal and fiberglass rods and then zip tied them individually to each of the damaged stalks to kind of make them get upright again and make it all look really good make it look beautiful which was the whole point and I used that story to demonstrate just how much care and pride people took in preparing for this game. And I talked about the broadcast before, but of course there were the dozens, hundreds of people from Major League Baseball, these farmers, others as well who were involved in the building of the field, the site. It was just a thing of beauty, as I said earlier. So to Buster, I say, hey, man, I hear you, but that's the way life works. All right, on to some actual baseball questions. Um, with the win on Thursday, the White Sox obviously dominating the AL Central, and that's actually the next question. It comes from Dan Z in Ohio. He says, I was curious with what you think about the AL Central's landscape and how it will look in coming years. While Chicago is seemingly gearing up for a big run, Minnesota still has a good portion of the team they were expected to succeed with this season, Detroit and Kansas City. Threat of resurgence is on the way, and Cleveland still has the young pitching as well and a strong farm system and room to inject money into the payroll. Uh, often hailed as the weakest division in baseball, I tend to view it as the scrappiest, and I look forward to it getting scrappier. My question for you is, is there a chance that the next five years could be a five-team race for that division? There is a chance, and that's a really good point. And I looked this up today. All right, the White Sox farm system is not very good, but their major league club is the best, and a lot of their players have graduated, such as Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets and Garrett Crochet. They're young players in the major leagues. 
Luis Robert and Eloy Jimenez are also young players in the major leagues signed long-term. So it's not as if, oh my gosh, they don't have a good farm system. Their farm system, or the cream of it, is essentially on the field. And they have a window now extending through at least next year and possibly beyond where they should be really good. What's interesting is that the other four teams, Tigers, Twins, Indians, Royals, all were rated as top 15 farm systems coming into the year. Different publications had them in different places, but generally speaking, they were top 15. Detroit's got some really big prospects coming. Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green. Torkelson, a third baseman. Green, an outfielder. I expect Detroit to be quite active in free agency this winter, maybe to get one of the big shortstops. And their young pitching is coming. So, yes, they are on the rise. Cleveland, once their pitchers get back healthy, they've still got a really good farm system. They have a good management team that seems to put them in competitive positions. I want to see them keep Jose Ramirez, which I'm not sure will happen after this offseason. But that is a team that certainly, if they do keep Ramirez, can compete without any question. I'm a little worried about Minnesota. Obviously, they've traded Barrios, who they had for next year. Cruz, of course, is gone as well. They're not going to lose much in free agency, and they have a decent system. But my question would be, who's going to be their rotation next year? What is that going to look like? And then finally, Kansas City. They didn't take the step forward that maybe they wanted to this year because their young pitching, many of them college arms, didn't really advance the way you'd ideally want them to. But those guys were all really talented. And they've got a decent position club. So, yes, they can all compete. Every one of these teams has the ability to compete in the next five years. Yeah, that division is going to be a lot of fun. All right, from AL Central to NL Central, this question says, uh, "Is it? it's not very much fun right now to be a Cardinals fan, a mediocre team, and still a month or so left in the season. How do you view the future of this team? Also, what are some possible names of players who the Cardinals might sign or trade for in the upcoming offseason? It's funny, we've had a couple of questions, Tim, on the Cardinals the last few weeks, and their fans are frustrated. There's no yeah. doubt about that. They've played better of late. Since the All-Star break, they've been much better. And it coincides now with Flaherty coming back and some of their pitching getting in order. They, to me, still need to improve offensively. One more big bat perhaps would solve some things. Now, I don't know necessarily where you put it, because the outfield has improved. It's still not a greatly productive outfield, but O'Neill and Bader and Carlson, that's a good group. The two guys in the corners, Arnado and Goldschmidt, you like them. DeYoung has had a bad year or a, le a lesser year. He's, he was hurt. And then, of course, at second base, Edmund. And they've had it, some good work out of Edmundo Sosa as well. So they still should be good. Their division is is not all that powerful. A couple of good moves in the offseason, and they can be right back in it. But are they going to spend? Are they going to take those steps? And who is it going to be? I'm not so sure yet. A shortstop, obviously, would be one way to go, especially with that class of free agents so deep. All right, so the Cardinals' struggles are, are well-documented. The Brewers continue to lead the way in the Central Division, and that is our next question on the voicemail. Hey, Ken, this is Jimmy calling from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and as you can guess, I have a Brewers question. Um, based on his numbers last year and this year, how do you think that fans and the front office um, should view the Christian Yellows contract? Thank you. Jimmy, right now, obviously, 
you have to be worried about Yelich. And forget the contract for a minute because it's a good contract as long as he's productive. My biggest concern with Yelich is maybe he just isn't back to full health. And I'm not saying he's injured. I'm just saying I don't know that he's 100%. And last year, let's go through this. Last year, 786 OPS. That was when you adjusted for the park and the league, 11% above league average. So it was not his normal year, but it was not a horrible year. For him, it was. This year, he's 2% below league average. I'm talking about OPS plus now. That's alarming. Now, he had the back issue that sidelines him for a little more than a month, mid-April to mid-May. Then he had COVID from late August to early August, and he's missed some time. He's only 30 years old. I wonder if the back is something he's always going to have to deal with and it's going to be a problem. I do have that question. As someone who has had back problems, I can kind of relate, although I don't have to hit every day. So the Brewers still think there's a possibility they're going to get a Christian Yelich-type month out of him this year. They still think that's possible. And if it happens, they're that much better positioned to make a run. But long-term, I just want to see him be the player he was again. And maybe that won't happen until 22. I don't know. Yeah, hopefully he gets healthy. Of course, COVID has effects that seems to affect everybody differently as far as an athletic standpoint and how long it takes people to get back as well. All right, another voicemail uh, from another Frank. Hey, Ken. This is Frank calling from Cleveland. My friend Aaron and I were talking this week, who's also a listener of the pod, and we were debating ALMVPs. Now, I'm well aware this really is not a debate based off of the player that Aaron brought up, Otani. However, let's play a game of guess this player. 320 average, 65 runs scored, 20 home runs, 21 stolen bases as a leadoff hitter. Any guesses? Cedric Mullins. Is it safe to say that he is the most underrated player in the American League right now? And any other year besides the one Otani is having, he could be a front runner for the MVP? Frank, that's a great point. And Cedric Mullins is having an amazing year. And yes, he might be the most underrated player in the game right now, mostly because of the team he plays for. The Orioles, who are just well out of contention, have been, don't look to be in contention anytime soon. But statistically, Mullins is right there. In Fangraph's version of War, he's tied for second with Marcus Semyon. This is entering Sunday's play. In Baseball References version of War, he's fourth in the American League. So that shows you he is a top five player, at least by those measurements. And those are debatable, but we probably all can agree that offensively, defensively, you put it all together with Cedric Mullins right now, base running as well, and he is that kind of guy. So, yes, he is the most underrated guy in the game. And as for AL MVP, I don't see any way it isn't Otani right now. It's just staggering what he has done in both areas, quite frankly. Vlad Guerrero Jr. would be the only contender or threat I would think to Otani and I'm not even so sure at this point it's even a debate all right back to emails we go this one from James he's a diehard Red Sox fan he says and he's wondering 
what you think of the recent skid. Do you think that the bullpen, specifically Matt Barnes, will turn things around soon? Why did they not add a first baseman or arm at the deadline? I understand the high asking prices, but you would think guys like Kyle Gibson or Rizzo could have been available. Where do you project the team finishing? There's a lot there to digest. There is a lot there. And start with the bullpen. Yes, I think Barnes will be fine. Even the best have their hiccups during the course of the season. And I know Chapman had his, right? And it's very unusual for a closer to go from April 1st to September 30th without having his moments. So I'm not so worried about him, per se. Their bullpen, sure, it could be better. And I was not impressed with the players they added at the deadline, from Schwarber to the two relievers. That said, it's Sunday, and they've just claimed Travis Shaw on waivers. He's going to be an additional option at first base. Now perhaps Schwarber will be mostly a DH. Overwhelmingly, though, I was not impressed with what they did at the deadline, especially when the Rays added Cruz, the Yankees added Gallo, Rizzo, and more. The Blue Jays added Barrios and several relievers, including Brad Hand. The Red Sox just kind of protected their flanks and waited for Chris Sale. Their team at that point kind of went into a tailspin. Now, whether they're related or not, I don't know. But we've often seen teams react kind of in a bummed way when their front offices do not match what they perceive to be the effort that the players and coaches have made. And I think that's what happened with the Red Sox. Now, Bloom, their president of baseball operations, has been on the radio there defending what they did, saying, listen, this is not about one year. It's about the whole thing going forward. And remember, he was hired, so they don't have these crazy up-and-down cycles anymore. I get that. Totally get it. But in my view, and I'm not there on the phone with him or reading his texts or emails, it just seems that they could have done more, more to supplement their bullpen, maybe even more to get another starter, any number of things you could have done to improve your team. They were not aggressive about it, and I do think it hurt them. So going forward, where do I see them finishing? I still see them as a potential playoff team, but it's a lot dicier now. And it's dicier because the Yankees got better, the Blue Jays got better, the A's got better, and right now the Rays are commanding the division. Coming from a family of Red Sox fans, Rizzo was the one that really hurt, I think, talking to family and friends that he's a guy they drafted, he's a guy they helped develop before they sent him away, and it just felt like the natural thing to have him kind of come home this year to fill a gaping hole at first base. But uh, yeah, that one definitely, I think, hurts for Red Sox fans. Back to email, and from a regular, I guess we'll call it at this point, uh, Geert Jan Verhoeven from Billingstad, Norway, is back. Uh, This question Um, not about what's going on on the field. With Wrigley Field soon to transform from part-time baseball stadium to a full-time gambling venue, and with now daily MLB app odds and preview articles, both sponsored by same sportsbook partners, I have this question. How does MLB's increased betting exposure and involvement affect Pete Rose's ban from baseball? Does it increase the odds of Charlie Hustle getting his permanent ineligibility removed, or will MLB turn a blind eye? I wouldn't call it a blind eye, but I would say that nothing is going to change. And this question is fair. And certainly, if you're a fan on the outside looking in and you see this, and especially if you're a Pete Rose fan, and you see all of the gambling elements that are being introduced into the game, from the Bally sponsorship of regional networks to the segments on MLB Network, all kinds of things are going on. You might wonder, hey, whoa. Pete Rose, hello, where is he? 
The difference is, and the reason Rose's ban will not be lifted, is because he bet on baseball. And as a player, you cannot do that. It's an integrity of the game issue. In fact, it's the premier integrity of the game issue. If there is a question about the validity of the competition, then you're going to have all kinds of problems. And you're talking about a sport that would be ultimately descending into professional wrestling. Something that is not on the up and up. It's something that is scripted or whatever. You'd have all these questions that were raised. And baseball doesn't want that. Baseball shouldn't want that. And listen, it pains me, the situation with Rose. I worked with him for a couple of years when he was at Fox. I like him. He loves the game. He's so knowledgeable still about the game. And my gosh, as a player, there was no question. First ballot Hall of Famer. Probably darn near unanimous. But he did commit the cardinal sin. And that is what it is known as in the game. And no matter how much MLB might embrace gambling, they're not embracing players gambling on games. Yep, that is the difference. All right, uh, this one from Jason Wilkie. His question is related to broadcast. Today's baseball can be a bit difficult to consume. I heard someone recently call the game Jack and Jog. With that in mind, what team local broadcasters, television or radio, do you think do a really great job of providing entertainment? Jason, you're going to get me in trouble with this question because I'm going to tick off some friends of mine, probably, because I'm going to leave them out of my answer. But I will give you some broadcasters that I really enjoy. A number of them are my friends. So, yes, I'm biased. But I think most people who are fans would agree with me that these broadcast teams are really good. The Mets, television. Ron Darling, Keith Hernandez, Gary Cohen, right at the top. Giants, television, also right at the top. Dwayne Kuyper, Mike Kruko, John Miller, who I have known since his Baltimore days, and Dave Fleming, they're all great. The Brewers with Brian Anderson. Of course, he works on the national level as well. And Bill Schroeder. The Padres, Don Orsillo and Mark Grant. Those guys are a riot. They're a lot of fun. Chicago White Sox. TV and radio. TV side, Jason Benetti and Steve Stone. Radio, Len Casper now. And Darren Jackson. And I would be remiss if I did not mention two youngish play-by-play men who I work with at Fox who now also or have also worked for teams for some time. Joe Davis with the Dodgers, works with Oral Hershiser, and Aaron Goldsmith with the Mariners. So those are some of them. I don't listen to as many radio broadcasts as I watch TV, but if you want to be entertained and you think the sport is jack, I guess for home runs, and jog for the way you run out home runs, okay, but these broadcasters all will not only entertain you, but teach you about the game as well. Yeah, I agree. And the, the one thing that all those broadcasters have is even if the game is 15 to 2 in the fifth inning, for those next four innings, they'll find ways to keep it interesting yes, by not talking about what's going on in the field, which is the one thing that I think, as someone who's done play by play of baseball, makes it harder than any other sport is there's so much time when there's no action going on. And those those teams you mentioned point. are they're so good at filling that time. It's it's great. Uh, all right, one last question. Uh, this one from uh, Ivan Rodriguez. He says, not Pudge. So just in case you were wondering, <laughs> uh, thanks so much for giving your listeners the chance to chime in with a question for your mailbag. I love the podcast, the overall series. Here's my question. 
which popped into my head after seeing the return of baseball to the Summer Olympics that ended last Sunday. Baseball is not planned to be a part of the Paris Games in 2024, but with L.A. hosting in 2028, it could return. Will, should Major League Baseball take advantage of the most convenient Olympic locale afforded to them and do whatever it takes to have their players a part of those 2028 games? Ooh, good question. Yeah. My answer is that most likely MLB players will not participate, and we can debate that, especially since Japan just interrupted its season, so its players could participate in the Tokyo Games and consequently won a gold medal beating a lesser group of American players in the gold medal game. Now, for baseball to interrupt its season, to field an Olympic team, or actually to allow several countries to use their players, remember, not all baseball players are American, I just don't see that happening. And it would be kind of cool. The NHL did it, remember, a few years back or a few times in the Olympics. It would be really awesome to see all these guys play in the Olympic Games, but we have the World Baseball Classic. I don't know that baseball wants to diminish that. That's their event. And also, just the the practicality of interrupting the season with all the injuries that we have right now with a non-interrupted season, I just don't see it happening from a business standpoint. I don't know that MLB would like it. If you could somehow convince MLB that it would be in their best interest financially to do it, they'd probably look at it in a different way. But as much as I kind of would be tickled to see it. I don't expect it to happen even in 2028 when the games are in LA. You obviously picture the gold medal game or a lot of the games at Dodger Stadium. Uh, it'd be really cool. But, you know, the World Baseball Classic, baseball doesn't have to worry about whether or not it's going to exist every four years, which is, I think, one of the frustrating things about the Olympics is that baseball has been such a um, intermittent sport in the Olympics that if you're Major League Baseball, it's it's not something you can count on. I would think that's that's got to be a frustrating thing for the sport. That's right. Um, and the WBC takes place in spring training, right, Tim? So it, right. it's before the season starts. It's effectively what an Olympic tournament would look like. And the International Olympic Committee has said, basically, well, because you don't send us your best players, we're not guaranteeing you every four years you're going to be involved. So it's kind of a catch-22 in that regard, but I don't see it happening. I just don't. All right, great questions again this week. If you want to get involved next week, the number is 646-543-7072. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Busy week for you, Ken. You're working a double header this week. That's a lot for players. It's a lot for broadcasters, too. It is. Luckily, I'm only the dugout reporter, so I don't speak all that often. <laughs> but yeah, for the guys actually doing both games, I think it's Bob Costas and Tom Verducci for MLB Network on Tuesday. They will be doing a lot of talking. No doubt. Yeah. So you have Yankees and Red Sox. Keep it locked here for the Athletic Baseball Show all week long. We're going to have more on a look back at the Field of Dreams game on Starkville with Jason Stark and Doug Glanville on Tuesday. Coming up on Thursday, it's the Baseball Barista with Grant Brisby and Hunter Pence. And on Friday, it's always Derek Van Riper and Keith Law. Great stuff. A little bit different every day of the week, and that's what we like to do is mix it up for you throughout the week. If you want to save 33% off on a subscription to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, you have a great week. Enjoy that doubleheader. Tim, thanks a lot. All right. Have a great week, everyone.